Hey, can we, uh, can we thank the, the youth worship team as well as Chase? Um, you know, for us, it's, it's pretty cool when uh, a junior high student can, can come up on stage and do a better job than, than most of us, so that's a pretty awesome. I uh, want to welcome you here this morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is John, and I have the amazing privilege and responsibility of being the youth pastor uh, here at the church. Uh, and if you don't know about our youth group, let me just tell you a little bit about who we are. As a youth group, we exist to fulfill the mission of the church, uh, which is to lead people to be authentic followers of Jesus. Uh, it's our desire and our heart to help young people live their lives for God in the midst of a lost and broken world. And so what we get to do week after week as we gather students from across our city is we get to share with them about the hope of Jesus. Uh, we do this through games, through worship nights, uh, through messages that speak into students' lives and their culture. And, and through gathering in community uh, where we spend intentional time in mentoring relationships between small group leaders and students. Uh, currently, we are running three different youth programs across our campuses. Uh, we have a junior high and senior high campus in Chilliwack. Uh, we have a, a youth group in Agassiz called The District. And one day, I hope that we have something up here. And so I want to encourage you to pray about that. If, if that's something that you would like to see, come talk to us because we would like to see that as well, but we need some help with that. Now, what's really cool is uh, this year we have seen roughly 290 students walk through the doors of Central, and what is amazing is that God keeps um, leading students to our youth program, and that's a really, really, really great problem to have. Uh, in the next two years alone, we're predicted to see, uh, I think it's just over 100 new junior high students transition into our youth group, and that's just from Central Kids Ministry. That doesn't include friends, that doesn't include visitors, uh, and, uh, and so as a church, we have been tasked with this really huge responsibility as we walk with students in the most formative years of their lives, and one of the biggest benefits that we can do together for our students is continue to invest in their lives in mentorship, in love, and continual guidance as we walk alongside them. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as the church uh, to continue to lean in and to point students closer to Jesus. Uh, and this has been something that Central has done for many, many, many years. Uh, I was a, a middle school and high school student at Central years ago. That was also many, many, many many years ago. Uh, and, and so I've seen that impact my own life. And so I really believe in the depths of my heart uh, that youth ministry matters. Uh, and, and the students of our church, they don't, don't necessarily need clever ideas uh, or great programming skills. Uh, rather, they need people like you. Uh, a living model of faith, a man or woman of God who is passionate about their faith and who's willing to walk alongside students as they navigate uh, their life, their culture, uh, the questions they have in their faith. And uh, they, they need someone to help remind them that there is hope and that hope is found in Jesus. Amen? Amen. So I want to encourage you that if you've got questions about how you can be involved, uh, you can either contact me, you can touch base with Cody. Uh, if you're a youth leader here, just throw your hands up in the air. Uh, talk to one of these individuals because they would love to also share what God's doing, the impact it's having, and how you can be involved uh, and love students in this place. 
Well, this morning we're going to continue our series uh, that we've been calling As Numerous as the Stars. And if you haven't been around the past few weeks, uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at this story of this guy named Abraham, and and what we've been discovering together uh, throughout the whole story so far is that Abraham really struggles uh, and, and really has these moments where it's like, ah, you're kind of missing it in this faith department. But what we see is that God time and time again steps in and and intervenes on Abraham and Sarah's behalf and he reminds them and he also reminds us as we read this story, as we work through it, that God is faithful to all of his promises. That he will always be faithful and even when we are faithless, God will do what he's going to do as he says he is. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open to Genesis 20, uh, verse 1. We're going to read all the way to uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 7. And um, let's just quickly pray before we do that, and then we'll, we'll jump into God's Word. Uh, God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the gathering of your church. Uh, that we can come into this place and we can proclaim you. Uh, God, thank you for our students and just how they've led so well and our, our, our adult team as well. Uh, God, it is for your glory. And so this morning as we dig into your word, uh, Lord, would you speak, would you move, would you work in our hearts and would we hear what you have to say to us this morning? We pray this in your great and awesome name. Amen. Uh, chapter 20 starts with this. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Nagab and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me that she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was, done, uh, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all of his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and and how have I sinned against you, that, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. 
To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time at which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, folks, I want to welcome you to Youth Sunday. And, and I don't know about you, uh, but I, I feel like I just watched a follow-up episode of a Jerry Springer episode where, where you have some old hillbilly character uh, named Skip Abraham going back onto the show to convince others that his wife Sarah Jane is actually his sister and that she gave birth to a baby at 90 years old. Um, it, it, is, it is a weird passage, and I am so thankful that I, I get to share this morning with you. Um, and as I was reading this passage, I was left wondering, how did Abraham ever think that this was a good idea? Now, I have something to confess to you this morning, and it may uh, be a shock, or it may not be a shock to most of you, uh, but I am not a smart man, okay? I'm not a smart man, uh, but I know what love is. I think it was Forrest Gump who said that. I know what love is. And what I know is that as a husband, uh, that I am supposed to honor and protect and care for and lay down my life for my wife. Like, I'm supposed to proclaim to the world that that lady right there, uh, and, and not Jaden or Jonathan, but that lady right there is my wife, and she is the best. She is the best. I love her. I'm supposed to proclaim to the world that she is mine, right? That's my wife. I'm her husband, uh, and although I've done a lot of stupid stuff in my life, I can stand up here with all integrity and say that I have never called my wife my sister, okay? Because I knew that from the very start of our relationship 16 years ago, uh, which for Heather is like a prison sentence, but she stuck with me, that this was a, this was a relationship that I am supposed to uh, honor, you're not supposed to convince others that your wife is your sister. And so because it's Youth Sunday, uh, and, and because we're looking at this really strange passage, uh, can I have your permission to share with you uh, what I call uh, John's top five reasons why you shouldn't call your wife your sister? Are we okay with that this morning? We're going to have some fun together, okay? Uh, so I want to start with number five, five reasons why you don't call your wife your sister. Number five, you shouldn't call your wife your sister because it's going to make family gatherings really uncomfortable, Okay. Uh, number four, calling your wife your, your sister only tells the rest of us that chivalry is dead in your marriage. Uh, number three, calling your wife your sister does not only offend your wife, but it also offends your sister. Um, number two, calling your wife your sister is just as bad as calling her your cousin. And with a drum roll, please, 
Uh, thank you, youth. Number one, uh, calling your wife your sister only tells the world that you might be a redneck, okay? Ah, uh, yes. So, this is the second time in our sermon series that we have ran into the same problem. You see, for Abraham, it is a new day, but he struggles with the same sin. And so that's the first thing that I want us to look at this morning. This is the second time in the story of Abraham where where he throws his wife underneath the bus because of the the fear that he has for his own life. You see, what's really important in our our passage this morning uh, is that we understand Abraham's deceitfulness and we understand his sinfulness. If you open your Bibles to Genesis 12, uh, you are going to read the story of Abraham and Sarah uh, traveling to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And it says uh, that when they were about to enter Egypt, Abraham, in all of his splendor, uh, has the guts to go up to his wife and say, Sarah, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now imagine it for a second, folks, right? Abraham goes up to his wife, gives a compliment, right? Her heart flutters for a moment, and then he says, but, right? I I got something else to add. You're beautiful, uh, and I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, um, and uh, and when the Egyptians see you, uh, they're going to say, this is Abraham's wife, okay? And, And then they're going to kill me. And they're going to kill me because you're beautiful. And, and although they're going to kill me, they're going to let you live. So, so what I want you to say, right, my gorgeous wife, is I want you just to pretend and say that I'm his sister. So that it goes well with me because of you. And as a result of this, my life is going to be spared for your sake. What a poetic thing he just said, eh? <laughs> okay? They're going to kill me. Pretend you're my sister. And so that's what they do. Uh, Out of fear, Abraham convinces his wife to lie uh, about their relationship. And and when they got into Egypt and they thought they got away with it, Genesis 12 tells us that, that the Lord himself afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Like, like God grabbed a hold of, of Pharaoh's heart and said, you're, you're actually like, you're being run here, right? This is not good. God grabbed a hold of Pharaoh's attention, wakes him up to the whole scheme. And so what do you do when someone's wronged you? What do you do? Well, Genesis 12 says that, you, that Abraham had a conversation, because that's what you do. When someone wrongs you, you have a conversation to, to deal with the elephant in the room. Right? God grabbed a hold of Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh goes to Abraham, says, Abraham, old buddy, old pal. All right? Let's have a little conversation about, uh, uh, about uh, the, the heart of the matter. Right? Uh, so Pharaoh says, you, you told me your wife was your sister. Okay? I, I know what you did. I know that you, you lied to me. I know that you deceived me. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh in Genesis 12 calls Abraham out of his sin, and as a result, he, he doesn't kill him, but he graciously kicks him out of Egypt, right? So you see, for Abraham, a, a great lesson was learned that day, but here we are in, in Genesis 20, it's 25 years later, and Abraham's still pulling the same, same crap, if I can say that. If not, I'll talk to you, but Okay. <laughs> Now, now, I don't know about you, but I am I'm very slow uh, to learn lessons in my life. 
And there are people uh, who are in this church uh, who will tell you, and, and this morning, uh, it's my wife. Hi, Heather. You can wave. Okay. Uh, if you really want, you can talk to Heather about the time uh, that I built steps at my house with Nate Bursey, if you remember Nate Bursey. And, and she will tell you uh, that I, I did not learn a lesson that day. Okay. You see, a few years ago, we were selling our house, and, and our front steps of our house were all rotten, and so we decided that we needed to replace them, and so we started ripping it apart, and as we're ripping it apart, the storm comes rolling in, and we're like, we're pressed for time, and so thinking that, that I've got, you know, I, I've got to get this job done, I thought, hey, you know what, I'm going to ask Heather, I'm actually, I'm not going to even ask her, I'm just going to send Heather to the lumber yard with four kids and the worst instructions that you could ever possibly give someone who's going to the lumber yard for you, okay? So here's Heather, and we're talking, our kids were like, how old were they, Heather? Jaden was eight, maybe eight, nine, plus like little, little kids. And so I say, Heather, you need to go do this. And, and Nate turns to me and he says these three words that I still remember very vividly to this day. He just says, John, buddy, no. <laughs> okay? Now, in, in my defense, uh, Heather knows that I'm a youth pastor and I'm not one of them construction guys, okay? And, uh, and she also knows that I can't read a tape measure uh, uh, more than I can tie my shoe, okay? Because this is how I read a tape measure. It's five inches and four lines, right? I just look at those little lines, one, two, three, four. Awesome, it's never failed me. And so she was fully aware of what she's getting herself into. So Heather leaves, goes to the store, and can you guess what happened? My phone rings. And it's a guy from the hardware store asking for better clarification of what my wife needed to pick up, okay? And, and this is what he said to me. He, and I kid you not, this is, this is the last thing he ever said to me, and I have switched lumberyards because of this. Uh, he said, uh, next time you shouldn't send your wife, uh, you should just come down yourself. It's a good word. I needed to hear that. So my wife comes home with material loaded in the back of the truck, and I got rebuked big time. Like, I got called out on this. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I go to the back of the truck, and, and I had to send her back to the lumberyard because she picked up the wrong material, right? It was four inches and five lines. How could I, how could I mess that up, right? It, it took me two times being rebuked by my wife because she rebuked me very, very, very much after that. Uh, one time by this hardware guy that I had no clue and, and, and years of mockery by Nate Bursey to know that this is not something that I should do. And so here we are in our story. It's 25 years later, folks. And Genesis 20 reminds us that it's a new day, but Abraham still struggles with the same sin. And Heather, in 25 years, I may send you to the lumberyard again, okay? It's my promise to you, okay? So our passage starts off by telling us that Abraham is on the move again. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between sure, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now, now, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, uh, but for whatever reason, Abraham has decided that he needs to be on the move. And it could have been that he just saw the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he could have, uh, he just experienced the wickedness of humanity, had seen God's judgment, or maybe it was just common practice to, to move around every so often so that an enemy doesn't attack you. But what we know is that it wasn't based upon God's instructions. Because any time that you see Abraham on the move before, it's where God actually calls him to go to a place. And so here's Abraham leaving 
and, and Abraham moves on his own accord, and he ends up finding himself in this new land, and, and not very much is known about this place, but what we do know is that it was ruled by this king named King Abimelech. And Abimelech is the El Hefe. He is the boss man. He is the guy who rules everything, uh, who knows everything. Everyone knows who he is because he's the king. He's been given a title of, of king, which means he's got wealth and influence and power. And, and so imagine what would happen when Abraham and his crew uh, move into the neighborhood unannounced. Here, Abraham himself has, over the past few chapters, has acquired some wealth. He has brought people along with him. He has servants, uh, and, and he's brought all of his animals. So his, his moving into the neighborhood is not unnoticed. And, and so what, what, what happens whenever a large group of people go somewhere? Well, they're always noticed. They stand out. Actually, one time our, our grade eight guys joined the water aerobics class for a small group fun night, and uh, we were noticed, and, and the guy who, who was running it, what's his name again? Dylan. Dylan, Dylan is actually uh, sits in the booth up there, and, and he comes up, he goes, hey, aren't you guys from Central? It's like, oh no, they know who we are. Stop doing handstands, guys, okay? Uh, and, and so what does the king do? He gets, he, he gets ready for the possibility of a power shift. He goes, I noticed that you're moving in. The, the king positions himself to remain king. And so he does something that was very common in the day. Uh, he makes a treaty with Abraham. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. What is the best treaty uh, that you can make with someone who, who also has power and money and influence? Uh, what do you do when there is someone who could potentially defeat you if there's a battle? Well, it's simple. You, you marry into their family you find someone from the rival family, and you, you marry them, and you say, we're family now. And, and, and family always protects and looks out for one another. I mean, this is a very smart move on behalf of the king. And, and so that's what he does. He goes up to Abraham, and Abraham, being fearful of his life, doesn't blurt out, have you met Hagar? He goes, have you, have you met Sarah? She's my sister. She's available. He, he literally hands her over to the king. And, and this time in, in Genesis 20, he doesn't even give time to, to like prep his wife. He, it's just this, this, this knee-jerk reaction based on his fear. Here's Sarah. And so the king says, this is your sister? She's not married? She's good-looking? Awesome, I'm going to marry your sister, I'm going to become your brother-in-law, and the nuclear alarm can be shut off because we're going to be good now because we're family. And so our text tells us that, that he sent for Sarah, he took her, the treaty was established, but here's the thing, folks. Abraham had no clue what he had just jeopardized. The, the consequences of his sin were, were disastrous. You, you see, folks, Abraham... Uh, didn't just lie. He didn't just act selfishly. He, he didn't just fail to honor and protect his wife. Ultimately, he didn't trust in the sovereignty of God, that, that God would look out for him. And, and what does he unintentionally do? Uh, Abraham jeopardizes the covenant promise that God had given because, uh, because God is faithful. And, and, and Abraham jeopardized this because he is faithless. You see, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 
are, are two stories that are really similar in appearance uh, and circumstances, but what every commentator author writes about is that Genesis 20 is far more critical than Genesis, or uh, chapter 12. Uh, you see, God had, had clearly revealed in chapter 12, um, or sorry, in, in Genesis 17, that God had clearly revealed to Abraham and Sarah that together that they were going to bear a, a child in their old age, and, and that this would be part of this covenant promise that we've been talking about. And Genesis 12 says, I will bless Sarah and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations and kings of people will come from her and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Right? It was going to be through the birth of a son that this, this covenant promise would be given to all of humanity. And if you look at the genealogy in, in Matthew chapter 1, you are going to get a picture of what Abraham almost missed. It says this in Matthew 1, that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on this genealogy goes with a bunch of names I'm not going to try to pronounce. And eventually we read these incredible words, and there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You see, Abraham just compromised the covenant promise. He just compromised Jesus. And I want you to think about it for a moment. What's, what's the one thing that could have jeopardized this covenant promise of a son? What's the one thing that would, would make people question the legitimacy of the birth of a barren woman? It is the seed of a different man. You see, Abraham just missed it. Now listen, if you haven't heard it yet, let me say it again. Abraham is not the hero of our story. Abraham is a man of faith who, who we would expect should have his stuff together. He should be uh, one of the greatest examples of faithfulness. He's supposed to be the man who lives above reproach because he's called the father of faith. But here's the thing, folks. Abraham is a repeat offender. He's a nonstop sinner. He appears as both a man of, of great spiritual depth and strength and a person who has this, this common human weakness and needs. And I wonder, you know, as you read this does, this, does this surprise you at all that God would choose Abraham? You see, as I, I read passages like this, one of the things that it, it forces me to do and one of the things that it should force you to do is to stop and to reflect on our own spiritual strengths and also our common human weaknesses and our own tendencies to fall into sin. You see, it's easy to read passages like this and to cast judgment, but, but Matthew 7 reminds us that when we see a speck in a brother's eye that we actually need to stop and notice the log that is in our own where it's easy to point fingers towards Abraham or, or to, to look at others in their sin and cast judgment, uh, uh, we, we actually need to stop and we need to look at our own hearts. We need to look long enough in the mirror and see our own sinfulness because we're all subject to this thing called sin. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, the truth is that men are not basically good. They are basically evil, and the essence of their sins lies in their selfishness. You see, all of us are like Abraham. 
We are sinners who, who are being called out or have been called out of a past. We've been called to, to walk in submission and obedience to God and to his word. And instead of listening and obeying and submitting to God, we choose to do our own thing. You see, our tendencies as fallen human beings is to always return to our sin. Proverbs 26, verse 11, so, so bluntly puts it, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And that's what Abraham does. That's what I do. That's what you do. Romans 3.23 gives us the sobering truth that regardless of, of how good we look or, or, or how good we may, may be or how nice we are or how many good things we've done, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is the, the missing of a mark. It is the wandering of a path, a straying from the fold. It is a hard heart and a stiff neck. It is, it is blindness and, and deafness to the things of God. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. And it doesn't matter if we've been walking with Jesus since we were little kids or, or, or we've been called out of a strange land as adults. Sin is something that we're going to wrestle with our whole life. And that thing that you wrestle with, that one that's, that's hidden deep in the depths of your heart, the one that you would really hate for the person beside you to, to find out, every so often your sin is going to rear its ugly head and you're going to be reminded, just as Abraham was reminded, that we're sinners who deserve nothing but death. Because we're not good. And, and, and when we can know that and we can wrestle with that and, and, and uncomfortably sit in that, that reality that this is who I am and this is why I need God, it, it makes the story just so much better. It helps us to appreciate the outcome of it. And so this leads me to our, our second point this morning, which is but God. You see, for the last eight chapters, we have been resting in this covenant promise between God and man and how God fulfills all of his promises regardless of, of man's sinfulness. Now, if you don't know what a covenant is, uh, let me summarize by saying this, that when the Bible speaks of God's covenant uh, with his people, it is explaining how our relationship with God is made by his provisions and it exists by his terms. A covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties. It is sealed with an oath. Uh, maybe to help you understand it in a, a, a different way, a covenant is a life or death relationship with God on his terms. The covenant that God made with Abraham was not based on Abraham's good works or his perfection or getting it right. The covenant is based on God's gracious provision because he is a loving Lord to his people. And so at the start of Abraham's story, God did one thing with Abraham. He, he told Abraham to leave his country, to journey to a new land that God was, was going to show him, and Abraham responded by faith. He went God promised Abraham that though his wife was barren, he would become the father of many nations. God promised Abraham that he would be blessed by God and that the whole world would be blessed through one of his offspring. 
You see, Abraham did nothing to deserve this. This is all God. And the only thing that, that Abraham has to do is respond in faith. You see, our passage this morning is, again, simply reminding us that Abraham is far from being the hero of the story, but, but rather God is the hero. You see, Abraham's sinfulness in Genesis 20 puts the whole covenant promise at risk. If the king slept with Sarah, the promise of a son and the promise of the whole world being blessed by Abraham's offspring would be at stake. The the legitimacy of the baby would be in question, right? Because Sarah was told within the year that she was going to conceive. And so here's the best part of our story. That when the covenant was being jeopardized, God could not idly sit by because this wasn't Abraham's plan uh, plan at stake. It wasn't Sarah's plan at risk. It was God's plan to bless the whole world. And so what does God do? He intervenes on behalf of Abraham. And in verse 3, it says, But God appeared to King Abimelech in a dream by night. And essentially, if we could summarize verses 3 to 7, it would say this, that God says, Let this be your warning. King, let this be your warning. You're a dead man. Get your hands off of her. Get her out of your bed because she's a married woman. And although Abraham may be sinful, and although Abraham deceive you, there's something bigger at play here that you don't even comprehend. Sarah, Abraham's wife, is going to carry my covenant blessing to the whole world, and I'll do whatever it takes to protect her because this is my plan, and this is the plan that I have had for the whole world to receive salvation. God says, I'm not willing to let this go sideways. So what did I do? I, God, did not let you touch her. I, God, stopped you on your wedding night because she's not yours, she's mine. And, and through her, I will change the course of, of all history, past, present, and future. Now return the man's wife, right? God intervenes into the story. And the words, but God, are, in my opinion, two of the most incredible, most amazing words that are found in all of Scripture. And I believe that these words are actually at the heart of the gospel because they remind us that God, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his grace, and his love, steps in on our behalf. In the most simple term, but God captures the complete nature and the character of God. That he will always intervene and save and redeem and restore and resurrect and make things new. And when all things seem lost, God intervenes to protect the covenant promise. God intervenes to deal with Abraham's sin. God intervenes to warn the king of his impending fate if he doesn't let Sarah go, right? God God swoops down to save because it is his character. You see, folks, the words but God are found all throughout Scripture. There are hundreds uh, and hundreds of instances where God steps in on behalf of humanity, And although uh, we may not have dreams from God like Abimelech, and sometimes we may wonder if God is actually intervening on our behalf today, like like when, when we find ourselves in the pain of our sin, when each day we face its consequences, when we struggle with it, when when death is all around, the easy question that we can ask is: where is God in all of this? And this morning, I want to remind you that that He has intervened. 
He has intervened on your behalf. In, in Genesis 20, God intervenes on your behalf because you're the recipients of the promised blessing. He intervened on Abraham's behalf, on Sarah's behalf, and on your behalf. And this morning, some of us need to be reminded that God intervened for you. Uh, Ephesians 2 uh, tells us that it says this, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. We, we can read Romans 5, uh, verse 7 to 8, where it says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God... You see, folks, God so loved this world that when he saw his creation in the sin, he couldn't just leave it. He creates this plan. He puts that plan into motion when he called Abraham. And when Abraham risks it all, God steps in. He intervenes. And you see, folks, every time that I read these two simple words, but God, I am I'm blown away. And I think one of the lessons that, that some of us need to learn in all, of it, in, in, in all of this is that the God of yesterday, the God of Abraham, the God that intervened for Abraham, is the same God of today. And he will be the same God of tomorrow. And let me tell you, as a sinner in need of, of God's grace this morning, it is so freeing to know that God intervened on my behalf. And he intervened on your behalf. Because I know that without God's intervention in my own life, I would, I would create some stupid plan like convincing others that my wife is my sister, right? And again, I wouldn't do that, but that's just for the sake of the sermon, right? Um, we come up with the craziest things that we think are okay. God's intervention for Abraham it's because of his faithfulness to his promise and because his love for his people. And so that's the last thing that I want to look at this morning is the faithfulness of God. Our, our story continues in verse 10, and it tells us the confrontation that King Abimelech had with Abraham. Uh, essentially, in this section, uh, uh, Abraham is, is getting, you know, he's getting chastised. He's, getting, he's in trouble here. He's being told to smarten up. And, and you know what? Rightfully so. Because it's a word that Abraham desperately needed to hear. And, and our text says that Abimelech said to Abraham, what did, uh, what did you see that you did this thing? Essentially, he's saying, how did you ever think that this was a good idea? Now, I don't know about uh, what, what you think, but isn't this a prime opportunity for Abraham to, to be the man of God that he's called to be, to own up to his sin and to confess it? Like, like, we know he wronged the king. It, it would have been nice if, if, uh, if Abraham even just acknowledged that fact, uh, but, but, but he doesn't, right? What, what, is, what does Abraham do? He totally misses it yet again and again 
And so what does he say? He says, King, I, I did it because there is no fear of God uh, at all in this place, right? This is a very arrogant statement considering how, how the king actually responded to God's intervention. Uh, so he goes on, he makes more excuses. He goes, I did it because you might kill me because of my wife. I, I did it because, well, she is indeed my sister. She's just my half-sister. And man, I'm glad I'm running over time because we're going to skim over this one. Different time, different culture, don't marry your half-siblings, okay? Um, and, and lastly, my favorite excuse of Abraham is this. When God caused me to wander, when God caused, caused me to wander, he, he, he blames God because of this. Abraham has, has so much that he has to learn, and, and he is going to learn these lessons throughout his whole life. And, 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 and Abraham responds and excuses, and, we're, and we're, we're thinking, like, this isn't how the patriarch of the faith should respond. But, but what's going to happen in the next few verses is going to foreshadow something incredible and amazing here. It says in verse 14 that Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother. What a, what a statement, eh? I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Did you, did you get what happens in these passages? The king showers Abraham with gifts, even though he doesn't deserve it. It was, it was his grace being poured out. Abraham deserved nothing, but what did he get instead? He got riches, and he got animals, and he got servants, and I mean, this man was given more money than, than we would see in our lifetime. He's given 25 pounds of pure silver. And who deserved that? Who deserved that? N not Abraham. And, and why did he get it? Well, the king is, is, is proving his innocence. He's acknowledging that, that he was in the wrong. Um, he, he is proving that he didn't lay his hands on Sarah. Like, no one could ever question the legitimacy of the birth of Isaac uh, because nothing happened. Um, he's doing it because he wants to vindicate Sarah. But we can't forget the other reason why the king showered gifts to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? God promised him that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation, a big nation. And, and as the king is pouring out riches, do you know what God's doing in this? He's remaining faithful to his promise. Our passage continues to tell us that Abraham then prayed to God and he healed the king and he healed his wife and female slaves so they could bear children. Did, did the king deserve this? No, the, 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 the king was just as wrong as Abraham was. But God healed because he was remaining faithful to his promise that he was going to bless others. You see, God could have struck the king down, but what does he do instead? He offers the king life. He uses Abraham to be a, a, a conduit of God's grace and, and goodness into the king's life. He pours out blessing on him. 
And lastly, we, we come to the best part of the story, chapter 21, and it says this, that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Listen, folks, Abraham could have ruined it all. And what's amazing in this passage is that, that God remains faithful to his promise regardless of, of who we are, regardless of Abraham's faithfulness. God is who he is. And I love that God commands Abraham to call his son Isaac because Isaac means he laughs. And if you remember the story, both Abraham and Sarah laughed at God when God had promised a son, right? Uh, Isaac means he laughed. It, it is God's great sense of humor because every time that they call to, call to their son Isaac, they're gonna be reminded of the time that they laughed at God's promise. And they're gonna be reminded that God is faithful even when they're faithless. So every time that, that they, they call Isaac, Isaac, come here, Isaac, clean up your shoes, Isaac, do whatever you do back in that time, right? They're going to be reminded God was faithful, and we laughed. And we have to remember, this is, this is the best part. The birth of Isaac is, is just such a, a significant moment in Scripture because God is continuing the covenant promise to the next generation as he had promised, and we have to remember what Scripture says, that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on, and Mary the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You see, God is always good, and, and whenever he makes a promise, he keeps it, that God is always faithful, even when we are faithless, because he cannot deny himself. And this morning, some of you need to re be reminded of this, that regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your sin or how far gone you feel you are, that God is who he says he is. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says this, and this is from the message. It says this, that God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is, there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love, keeping the promise that he had made to your ancestors. That God stepped in and mightily brought you out of the world of slavery. He freed you from the iron grip of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know this, that God, your God, is God indeed. A God that you can depend on. That he keeps his covenant of loyal love with those who love him and observe his commandments for a thousand generations. You see, folks, nothing could stop God from seeing his covenant promise fulfilled because God had a plan of salvation for the world to be found in Jesus, Abraham's descendant. In Jesus, we would, we would be given a new covenant. When Jesus came, when Jesus died, when Jesus was risen from the dead, we were given a new promise, a gospel promise. And the gospel promises us forgiveness for all of those who believe in God's Son, that Jesus would take the weight of our sin on himself so that we wouldn't have to carry it anymore, that he will remember your sins no more. He will separate them as far as the east is from the west. John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful, that God is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness, no matter what our sin is. 
The, the gospel promises us deliverance from our sins, that Jesus came not only to forgive you of your sins, but to deliver them from you. He blots out your transgressions. The gospel uh, promises us new life where the wages of sin offers us death. The gospel promises us that we would be brought back into a right relationship with God. A.W. Tozer said, upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will, will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. You see, folks, this morning, we are actually invited to marvel and to celebrate and to rejoice that God is who he says he is. And so we're going to invite the worship team up. And as we end, we want to uh, end our morning in a time of response by worshiping and remembering what Jesus has done. That the one promise through Abraham and Sarah would, would go to the cross for us because that's what God promised. That Jesus, the Savior of the world, would suffer for our sins so that we don't have to. Where we deserve the cross, Jesus, the righteous one, took our spot to bring us to God. That Jesus would be put to death so that we could be made alive. And this morning, we're invited to marvel at God's promises, at God's faithfulness, at God's intervention in our lives. And I want to encourage you that if this morning, if you don't know this God, if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart as your Savior, come talk to me. Talk to Pastor Jonathan. We would love to share more about the hope and the promises of God. If, if, if you feel like you're too far gone, know that there is a Savior who intervened, a Savior that you can run to, a Savior who, when you're in a tight spot, steps down and intervenes. And remember that Jesus offers forgiveness, right? The descendant of Abraham gives us forgiveness, gives us a way to God. Folks, God loves you with a never sleeping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love because it is his promise. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the gathering of your church that we can proclaim truth in this place. And God, I am so thankful that you intervened in Abraham's life and as a result, you intervened on behalf of our lives. God, thank you for the incredible gift found in your promise, Jesus. God, thank you for his love and his grace and his mercy. Thank you that he went to the cross for us. Lord, that through him that we see your love for us. And so I pray this morning that as we respond in worship, would we sing loudly? Would we proclaim that you are good, Lord, because only you are. Where, you are. where we are faithless, Lord, you are faithful. Yes and amen, Lord. Thank you for that. We pray this in your great and awesome name. And the church said, amen.